Um, our first Bible reading actually is from Jeremiah 10. <laughs> uh, Jeremiah 10, verses 1 to 16. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O kings of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instructions of the idols is but wood. Beaten silver is bought from Tarshish, and gold from Uphiz. They are the work of the craftsmen, and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods who do not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the word by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Our next reading is from Daniel 6. Beginning from verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reigns of Darius and the reigns of Cyrus the Persian. Thank you, Regs. Well, do you tell the world about Jesus? In the church that I grew up in, uh, we sang a song called Tell the World. You might be familiar with it. Is anybody familiar with it? A few people? Kids, do any of you guys know it? Do you want to give us a rendition of it? Probably not, would be my guess. 
<laughs> Ezra, you get your chance later. I'll give you another chance. But sadly, uh, the person who wrote that song has actually since renounced his faith. He has walked away from it. Yet the words that he penned back then, they still have a ring of truth. After all, words are still words that have meaning, even if the person who originally put them together no longer believes them to be true. And this morning, parts of the song will serve to give us the structure for these few verses that we are going to dig into in Daniel chapter 6. And because the reason is because I think it captures quite well King Darius's decree here at the end of chapter 6. And it is perhaps fitting, given that we don't even know if Darius actually had a true faith in the living God or not. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 4, Darius here is more like Nebuchadnezzar from chapters 2 and 3, if you remember, where his recognition of Daniel and his friend's God is more something that is out there. He is their God. He is living true, but not so much in here. My God. And remember that even in chapter 4, you know, it's not a watertight conclusion that Nebuchadnezzar has real faith. So uh, even less so, we would want to assert here that Darius is professing real faith. But the point is that even a person who is not a genuine believer, not somebody who has real faith, can still recognize and proclaim something that is true. In these few verses of Darius's decree, he recognizes truth. That is all throughout Scripture. And that is what we will be exploring this morning. And we're going to do so through two sections. The first we'll call Tell the World. And the second we'll call Tell the World That. Again, if you're familiar with the song, that will make a bit of sense to you. If not, hopefully it will still make sense. First, we're going to look at the action of this passage. It's imperative, the thing that we must do in response to God's Word. And in the second section, we'll look at how we are to do that. What is it that we are to tell? And that second section will make up the bulk of this morning's sermon. Now, because this morning's passage is more of a deep dive into a few verses, I'm going to be quoting from other passages in Scripture more than I usually do. So let me encourage you to just take, uh, make note of those references, take note of them so that you can check them out later and in the moment just have a look at the screens of the verses as we go along. Uh, but let me encourage you also to have the passage open in front of you as we work through the different sections. So let's begin with our first section, tell the world. What must we do? We must tell the world. Let's have a read of verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Now, the first thing to mention is that, uh, as you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, uh, I said that it's, it's possible that Darius is actually Cyrus using a different throne name. And so if you jump down to uh, verse 28... It might seem like this sentence here torpedoes that idea. How can, how can Darius and Cyrus be the same king if you know, Daniel mentions them as two separate kings? However, in Aramaic, as in Hebrew, the word used for and there 
uh, has many different uses and meanings. It's kind of the, you know, the one-size-fits-all con connecting word. And one of them is that it can serve to function as an explanatory term. Uh, so there's even an example of this earlier in, the chap in Daniel chapter 6, where he says, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And then in verse 10, it becomes when Daniel knew that the document. And so the document and the injunction are referring to the same thing. And so hence the, the sense of it in verse 28 would be something like uh, the reign of Darius, also known as the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there are several theories that you know, seek to explain who exactly King Darius is, and this is certainly one legitimate possibility. Uh, but again, as I mentioned also last week, there may be other explanations in the future if more archaeology digs up further evidence. But the point is... This does not prove that the book of Daniel is pure fiction and cannot be trusted as history, as some people might claim. Now, given that Daniel refers to him as Darius, I'll also continue to do so. And now with that detail squared away, let's continue on with what uh, Darius actually says. Back to verse 25. You notice how Darius, he writes to all the peoples, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. And he makes this decree to them. Now, it's worth pausing on that. After all, this, this isn't just something that, you know, that powerful earthly kings who want to make a statement do. Actually, this, this global target audience of Darius's decree mirrors God's own concern for the world to know who he is. We see it first in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he states that all people on the earth will be blessed through him. It continues on through all of Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, especially when God delivers them out of uh, the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. In speaking to Pharaoh through Moses, God says, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Israel's exodus from Egypt and deliverance from slavery is something that would be a key part of their history, a key part of their story and identity as God's people. We're going to return to that a little bit later. And as we saw last week, Solomon prays a prayer of dedication for the new temple that he has just built in 1 Kings 8. And he says this in verses 59 to 60 that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. You see, one of the main reasons for the existence of God's people from Abraham to today has always been so that they would proclaim to the world who God is. And that is no less true for those who have been welcomed into the people of God in Christ. Jesus himself said that his gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world before the end comes in Matthew 24. And of course, his parting instructions in Matthew 28 make it clear what his disciples are meant to be doing until he comes back. In Matthew 28, kids, do any of you know what we normally call this instruction of Jesus's? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Does anyone know what we often use, the term we use to describe it? No. 
Anyone? Maybe some of the adults can help you. Adults, what do we normally call this? The Great Commission. That's right. Coined possibly by Hudson Taylor, I think. Anyway, sometime a couple of centuries ago. The Great Commission is what we often call this. It is uh, Jesus' instructions to all of his followers to continue to do until he comes again. And God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 is fulfilled. Fulfilled in Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the one through whom the nations are blessed. And his people take that good news to the world. We, as his people, have been commissioned to tell the world. Do you share this global concern of God's to tell the world that he alone is God? That the world may know that, that the world may believe that, that they may trust in him? We have a gospel to proclaim. It is a message of good news. And it's a message of peace. As Darius says, peace be multiplied to you. As we mentioned several times during our King series, the, the Jewish understanding of peace and the Hebrew word shalom is not simply an absence of conflict. And the Aramaic here, the meaning is essentially the same. It's an expression that was used commonly as a greeting, uh, like here, but its root sense, the, the, the sense of the word peace, is a desire and a hope that things be as they ought to be. It's not just the things you know, not being bad, but things being the way they are meant to be. And in the Bible, it is such a theologically loaded word. I know some uh, might think this is the wrong time of year for it, but let me take you to the angels who appeared to the shepherds uh, on the hill at Jesus' birth in Luke 2.14 where they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I was so tempted to suggest that we sing while shepherds watch their flocks by night this morning, but I think that would have just <laughs> spun a few people out. See, this is, this is central to the gospel. Jesus' birth, life, and death are the beginning of a restoration of the world to how things ought to be. Is that a message that you proclaim? And is that an attitude? Is that a heart with which you proclaim it? You see, you can proclaim the gospel message. You can, you can talk about it. You can tell the world with all sorts of different motivations. As Paul says in Philippians 1, 17 to 18, some preach Christ out of selfish motives. Do you do it just to tick it off your list of obligations? Do you do it out of guilt? Or do you do it out of a genuine desire for this world and for its people to know peace? To know the peace that comes in knowing Jesus. Listen to the 18th century evangelist George Whitfield's motivation. God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. Believe me, I am willing to go to prison and to death for you, but I am not willing 
to go to heaven without you. Brothers and sisters, do you love the world and all of its peoples? Does your love for God and for those around you, your neighbors, drive you to tell them this good news? This is the greatest way you may love your neighbor as you love yourself. I understand that we live in a culture now where you know, evangelists like Whitfield would not have the same degree of efficacy, certainly if we were to judge by, by human, human means. You know, there is not the same degree of, of biblical knowledge and foundational truth that is present in the majority of society. You know, people's kids are not just being taught it in school. And so we today are not able to just give you know, a simple gospel message and, and call to respond and then expect that people will, will have you know, all the, the key uh, understandings to be able to, to re- agree with that and respond to it. God, of course, can do a wonder and convert someone even without that. But normally, He works through the diligent, faithful, disciple-making proclamation of His people. Theologian Don Carson, in an interview once when he was asked to, to give a, a, a two-minute summary of the gospel, uh, he, he, before he did, he said, I, I'm actually going to duck the question first, <laughs> and then I'll answer it. And he talked about this very difficulty, the fact that it's, it, it's difficult for us to be able to do so because of that lack of foundational truth. And so I understand that it's not easy for us when, when so many don't know anything about it. And, and you might say, you know, uh, uh, you need to repent and, and trust in Jesus for your salvation. And most of them will say, well, who is Jesus and why? Why is that even important? It's not, it's not, and then not only that, they're not interested either. I understand that it is hard for us to, to share the gospel, to tell the world in our culture. But boy, it certainly seems to me like we are far quicker to come up with excuses for why we should delay talking about Jesus. It seems to me like our impulse is to go to that first and to go there quickly. Less often does it seem to me that we're talking about how we can be more ready and more winsome and more effective in sharing the good news. Could you say with Whitfield that a conversation couldn't go longer than 15 minutes before you shared Jesus with them? Is your love for him and your love for them so deep that you look for, that you pray for, that you take calculated interpersonal risks for opportunities to share the gospel, to talk about the true God? No? Welcome to the club. Believe me when I say I am preaching to myself in this just as much as I am to you. Lord willing, in a couple of hours, I'm going to be on a plane. And over the next 40 hours or so, I'm going to be on multiple planes. And each one of those rides will afford me an opportunity to sit next to somebody who cannot go anywhere, who can't leave my side unless there are spare seats and I really annoy them. Potentially somebody who has never heard of Jesus. 
And believe me, I've already downloaded all the movies and the books and the episodes of shows that I want to watch and read on each of those plane rides. But I I pray, I pray that those would only be needed if necessary. I pray that God would seat me next to somebody with whom I can share the good news of the gospel with. And I pray that God would so work in my heart that I would desire that even more than rest and entertainment. I understand the struggle. But if a polytheistic king can can make this kind of declaration to the world, how much more should we? Those who know, those who love and serve the Savior. Brothers and sisters, will you pray with me? Not just for me, even though I want you to pray for me, please pray for me as I go. Pray that I will go, and then I will be able to share the gospel. But let's pray for one another as we seek to put into practice this commission to tell the world. May we grow in our desire to proclaim the gospel to all peoples, all nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. But what do we tell them? Well, that brings us to our second section. Tell the world that. Well, kids, I told you I'd give you another opportunity. Does anyone know how the chorus goes? Tell the world that Jesus lives. Tell the world that. Tell the world that. Tell the world that he died for them. Tell the world that he lives again. Now, look, as far as, as, far as mid-2000s, you know, fast pop songs, you know, short summaries of the gospel go, that's not bad, right? It's not too bad. But especially, especially because in our culture today, so many people lack biblical foundations. It is so important for us to know and to grow in what it is that we are telling the world. And Darius's decree taps into some wonderful biblical truth that we can continue to meditate on and to proclaim. There are two main things that we should tell the world that we see in this decree. And consider them subpoints if you're taking notes. The first is that we should fear the living, eternal God. We should fear the living, eternal God. Let's take a look at verse 26. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. How often do you tell people, when you have the opportunity, that God is somebody before whom we should tremble and fear? Now, to be sure, the gospel doesn't end there. And so we we shouldn't end there either. 
But does this even come up when you talk about Jesus? It's important to recognize that our neighbors whom we share the gospel with, you know, they're not just essay questions looking for an answer. So it's not just, hey, let me just dump all this truth on you. They are people and there are elements of the gospel, of the, the message of the gospel that are difficult and are awkward to say. I had a conversation this week about the importance of loving and caring for people and being prayerfully wise about how and when we ought to bring up Jesus in the course of a relationship with somebody. But again, if we were to be in danger of something in our culture, I don't think it would be that most of us bring up Jesus too soon, right? And that would especially be true when talking about the fact that God is to be feared. Now, it's true that Scripture talks about fearing God, both in terms of being afraid and in terms of being in awe of God. Kids, do you know the difference between those two types of fear? Anyone? Anyone want to offer an explanation for me? What's the difference between those things? No? Let me give you an example. The first kind of fear, to be afraid, is when your dad is about to give you a smack or something like that. That's, you know, that's, that's that kind of fear. To be in awe is when your mom cooks an amazing dinner and you just think, wow, those skills, culinary expertise, incredible. It, that's probably a little bit irreverent. It's, it's a little bit more than that, but that's kind of in the right direction. Right. It's important to recognize, though, that even though the Bible talks about these two different kinds of fearing God, that without God's salvation, that first type of fear is the one that will not be relieved. If you hear the gospel and you reject God, then, as the author of Hebrews says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This makes sense, doesn't it? Darius recognized that Daniel's God was able to shut the mouths of lions. How much more ought we to tremble and fear knowing God's righteousness and judgment for our sin? If Darius was able to recognize that, surely we are able to when the consequences are more far-reaching. Brothers and sisters, this is not an easy thing to say and it's hard to know when the right time to say it is. But if your measurement of when the right time to say it is when a person that you are sharing it with will be comfortable with hearing it, then there may never be a right time. But one thing's for sure, it is part of the gospel. It is part of what we are to tell the world. You cannot preach a gospel of salvation without telling people what they're being saved from. As I've said before, but it's so good that it's worth saying again, my favorite verse in Amazing Grace is verse 2. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." 
How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Perhaps you're visiting this morning and that is something that is difficult to grasp or to accept. Maybe what I've just said is a bit too early in the relationship for me to be sharing that with you. Let me just say that I'm so glad you're here that I hope you stay tuned in for the rest of this sermon because the news gets better. And even though I won't be here at the end of this gathering, I hope you stick around to chat with some of our members and keep coming back to visit and keep hearing the good news that we love to talk about and why it is so important. Yes, we ought to fear God. But who is this God that we should fear? Well, as Darius decrees, He is the living God. The first thing is He is the living God. Notice how this is the explanation for why we should tremble and fear before God. For He is the living God. Unlike the gods that Belshazzar worshipped of of wood and stone that were dead and, and, and couldn't speak or save... No, this is the living God who brought the universe into existence. Not only that, He's the one from whom life itself comes. Genesis 1 and 2 describe God's creation of not just all things, not just matter, but all living things. And not only that, it describes how the very life and breath of humankind came. You are living and breathing because the living God has given you life and breath. It is the living God who speaks out of the fire, as Moses reminds the people in Deuteronomy 5. It is the living God whom Goliath defied and in whom David trusted to deliver Goliath into his hand. And it is the living God who actually did deliver Goliath over to David against all natural odds. It is the living God that Jeremiah compared with the false and the dead gods of the surrounding nations, as we heard earlier. And it is the living God that Jeremiah proclaimed to the world. Christian, does that that stir your soul? It's easy to have a cognitive acceptance of this truth, but a functional denial of it. The temptation to live as though God is not living is strong. It's way too easy to start living for so many other things instead of Him. Or worse, to convince yourself that He exists to do your bidding, to serve you. You see, because God's sustaining work of of keeping this earth spinning and keeping you living and breathing is not something that you can obviously see. It is all too easy to forget that that is what He is doing. It's all too easy to forget that it's only because He continues to sustain each of us in every moment that I'm still talking here and you are still hopefully listening. We can't see God doing that. And so we quickly and easily forget. Brothers and sisters, continue reminding yourself of this truth. May we remind one another of it, that we only have life because He is the living God. 
May we tell the world that. Well, we not only discover that He is the living God, but also that He is the living God who endures forever. Often in Scripture, we see how it is God's steadfast love that is spoken of as enduring forever, like in Psalm 136. But there are also many other things that are spoken of as enduring forever, like God's throne and His name and His word and His righteousness. But He is also spoken of as the God who lives forever. Look at Jeremiah 10.10 again. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. He is the everlasting King. One of God's attributes is His eternality. I had to look that up in the dictionary. It is a word. The fact that He is eternal. He has no beginning and has no end. Revelation 15, 7 underscores the point, saying that He lives forever and ever. This is crucial because it means that when God makes a promise about eternity, He's he's not just making some kind of wishful hope. Not only is He living, but He will not die, ever. He is eternal. He is forever. And this is, this is compelling for us as human beings. Ecclesiastes 3.11 reminds us that God has set eternity in our hearts. And this is, why the, this is why the human race just remains so stubbornly religious. We look around at the world around us and we notice the things that we see, that we touch, that we taste, that we feel in our hearts and we think to ourselves, Surely, surely there is more to life than just this material existence. Will you trust Him with your eternity? And how does that shape your today? We must tell the world that the living God is eternal. That our hope is not just for this life only, but forever. Well, not only is this God whom we fear living and eternal, He is the God whose kingdom is forever. By now in the book of Daniel, we're, we're pretty used to hearing this. Yeah, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that this is a major, if not the major theme of the book. Over and over again, we see how God is king over all kings, no matter how powerful they might be. And this is really highlighted in chapter 2, especially in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall stand forever. Not only that, uh, in the decrees of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, The wording is almost exactly the same, both at the beginning and the end of the chapter, to what Darius decrees here in chapter 6. And Daniel will go on to say even more about it in chapter 7, which we'll hear about in a month. Because of that, I won't say too much about this thing, because we've talked about it a fair bit. But I do want to zoom in here on the word dominion. 
It's interesting that Darius before mentioned his own royal dominion. Yet here he recognizes that God's dominion far surpasses his. He states the same truth as chapter 2, that God's kingdom will never be destroyed. And that it is a, and that, uh, that it is a theme that runs all the way through Scripture, not just the book of Daniel. Human beings are given dominion by God in Genesis 1 verse 28 as we are tasked with working the ground and tending to creation. That is a mandate that is given which extends even beyond the fall. And it is why Christians have and should continue to care about creation. This is why William Wilberforce, along with other Christians, first founded the RSPCA. God first gave the responsibility of dominion on earth to humankind. But in our fallenness, we have failed and continue to fail to exercise that dominion rightly. Which is pretty discouraging, isn't it? When we tell the world that we must fear and tremble before the living, eternal God whose kingdom will never end, whose reign will go on forever, and we tell the world that they have fallen far short, like us, of the glory of God and in the things that He has charged us with doing, I don't know about you, but that doesn't leave me in a good position. It's also why, in light of these great truths, the gospel it is such good news. The second thing that we must tell the world is that God saves. God saves. Read verse 27. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Do you notice how Daniel begins by proclaiming a general truth and then progressively moves on to how he knows that general truth? And he finishes by stating plainly that God has done this saving and delivering of Daniel from the lions and that enables him to see the kind of character that God has, which is what he proclaims up front. God delivers and rescues. We'll come back to that. But he also works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Signs and wonders. Kids, can anyone tell me what a sign or a wonder is? Anybody? I'm sure God can hear the whispers. Does anyone want to say it out loud? All right, so a sign and wonder is basically in reference here to something that is, that is what we would call supernatural, something that goes against the grain of what we consider to be the norm. And signs and wonders is yet another phrase that is not uncommon in the Bible. Perhaps its most common occurrence uh, is in relation to the Exodus. Exodus chapter 7 Verses 3 to 4 gives us an example. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. 
It's important to realize that the narrative describes the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in a few ways, including that Pharaoh hardens his own heart and also that his heart is hardened. But as Israel continued to reflect on this momentous part of their history in the Exodus, in, the, in God's saving them from slavery in Egypt, the terms would continue to be used as they continued to talk about what God did for them in delivering them out of slavery. Psalm 135 verse 9 and Nehemiah 9 verse 10 are two examples. God works through His signs and wonders and they are a means by which His name is proclaimed throughout the world. That was the case with the Exodus and that has been the case in Daniel. But what's interesting is that we see the terms used in a very different and important way in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Let me read to you the first three verses. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. It's not the signs and wonders that validate whether a prophet is a true prophet or not. If he tells the people to leave God or to disobey God, then he is a false prophet. False prophets can do signs and wonders. Kids, who can tell me what Pharaoh's magicians did when Moses put his staff down and it turned into a snake? What did Pharaoh's magicians do? Yeah. That, yeah, that's right. The magicians themselves did the same thing and they created, uh, they, they turned their staffs into snakes. If you've seen, has anyone seen the Prince of Egypt? Yeah, my kids are fixing to see it over the next couple of weeks. They're hoping to catch it. This is the part where that song comes in. You're playing with the big boys now. You're playing with the big boys now. You know, yeah, it's a great, great track. And, and so th this, is, this is the point, right? Just because someone might be able to do some kind of sign or wonder that goes beyond what is normally possible, that does not mean that they then speak on behalf of God. What matters is the message. If they are telling you to leave God, or if they are telling you that obeying Him doesn't actually really matter, or that you can have everything that you want in your life and have Jesus too on top, then you need to run away and get away from that message as soon as you can. That person does not speak on behalf of God. You see, even though signs and wonders often validated the message of the prophet, it is the message that matters. It is what they say that will ultimately tell you whether they do speak on behalf of God or not. And this thread is picked up by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark 13. Jesus warns his followers that false prophets lead the people astray with their signs and wonders. And not only that, but he exposes the wickedness and the sinfulness of those who keep asking for signs and wonders, but whose hearts are hard. 
Now, it's not, it's not all bad. But, and we will get to that in a moment. But this is certainly a point worth dwelling on. How often have you longed for just a sign? In your own life? For those that you are sharing the gospel with? How often have you thought to yourself, if only God would do blank? I know I have. If only God would do a sign or a wonder, then, then, then my faith would be built up, then, then I would you know, surely believe without any doubts that my friends and my family, that they would believe. The rich man in Jesus' parable in Luke 16 asked for the same thing. Lord, send Lazarus back. If they, if, if they see someone who has risen from the dead, then they will believe. And what's his reply? If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You see, sometimes we read the Bible and read about the signs and the wonders that God does through his prophets. And we think to ourselves, that must be the norm. That must be the way we do it. We should expect these things in our lives. Yet even from early on in the Bible story, God warns us about putting our trust in them. Brothers and sisters, your faith cannot be sustainably built on any miracle or sign or wonder that you personally see in your lifetime. It can only be sustainably built on His Word and His truth. Turn to His sure promises and His Word when He feels far away. Now, to be sure, as I mentioned, they they are not always talked about in a negative way. Daniel 6 here is a good example, and you'll find quite a few examples in Acts and in Paul's letters. 2 Corinthians 12.12 is one such example. Paul talks about the signs and wonders confirming the authenticity of the apostles' ministry. But there is one sign and one wonder that trumps them all. And that is connected to our final attribute of God that Darius declares in his decree. He delivers and rescues. There is a reason that our fears, by God's grace, are relieved. There is a reason that God is not just the living God, but also the God of the living There's a reason God doesn't just breathe physical life into all humanity as he did in Genesis 2, but that he also breathes spiritual life into his people as Ezekiel 37 foreshadowed. There's a reason that we can trust that he is the eternal God who will be with us until the end of this age, who will be with us beyond our deaths and who will carry us into the next age. There's a reason his kingdom shall never be destroyed. That like a stone that destroys the other kingdoms, it will expand to the four corners of the world and will reign forever. There's a reason that we, as those who have been given dominion over this earth, can now pursue that as redeemed people, 
as a royal priesthood, as Peter describes it in chapter 2 of his letter. And that reason is the greatest sign and wonder that history has ever seen. You see, when I said that you can't build your faith on a miracle or on a sign that you see in your own lifetime, that doesn't rule out all of them. Because you can build it on the greatest sign and wonder that history has ever known. The sign that seals the better promise of the new covenant. Peter, the apostle, recognized who Jesus was and he proclaimed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, Jesus would not remain dead after he was crucified. As Luke records the angels telling the women in Luke 2, 24, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Jesus' death on the cross accomplished forgiveness for our sin. And his resurrection to eternal life crowned him king above all rule and authority and power and dominion, as Ephesians 1 reminds us. You see, this is the sign that you can build your life and your faith on. Jesus' resurrection is the sign that has sealed our deliverance. Signed, sealed, delivered. Our rescue from sin and its consequences have been triumphed over in Jesus' triumph over death. Jesus' death and resurrection is the wonder of grace that has relieved our fears. Brothers and sisters, our hope in this age and our hope in the age to come is grounded in His finished work on the cross. We now live as a kingdom and priests today in submission to the King of Heaven, anticipating our reign with Christ in eternity. Have a look at Revelation 5, 9 to 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, uh, ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Is this where your hope lies? Is this the message that you tell the world? The message of the gospel of peace is one that we long to tell all peoples, nations, and languages. The reason we don't have peace right now is because our sin and rejection of Him as King has us standing in condemnation. And that ought to strike fear in our hearts. But the God who is living and eternal, whose kingdom shall never end and whose dominion will go on forever, He is not only the King of kings. He is also the one who delivers and rescues. The one who saves. We proclaim the message of the God who wondrously saved Daniel from the lions. 
And He is the same one who wondrously saves all who trust in Jesus for salvation. All who trust in His finished work on the cross and His victorious defeat of death and rising from the grave. That is what we tell the world. We tell the world that. You might not feel like a George Whitfield or a Billy Graham or a Ray Comfort. Not all of us have the gift of evangelism and we will all struggle for different reasons. But let me encourage you in closing with the words of Charles Spurgeon's grandfather, James, from his own autobiography. Spurgeon, speaking of a time when he was delayed by a train and came in late. And so his grandfather began to preach. As Spurgeon walked in, he said, he says this, he saw me as I came in at the front door and made my way up the aisle. And at once he said, here comes my grandson. He may preach the gospel better than I can, but he cannot preach a better gospel. Can you, Charles? There is... No better gospel in the world. Even if you think you're not very good at telling it. Will you tell the world that? Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled by the decree of Darius. We are reminded of who you are, of how often we fall short, of how great your love and capacity to save is. We marvel at your grace to us. And we ask that by your grace, you would use us to tell the gospel to the world. That through us, your faithful messengers, the world may be blessed. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.